This morning, would you please turn your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Yeah, chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 and chapter 2 verses 9 through 12 today. There's a Bible on the Nova Community Church app and there are the sermon notes right on that app too that you can fill in. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance." But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is God's word for us today. We are kicking off a series on 1 Peter today. And I don't think that a Christian can read this letter without hearing the voice of God speak powerfully to today's church. This is a letter written to churches like Nova. Peter's first letter is, is one that we need to examine and treasure because the post-Christian culture that we live in is very similar to the pre-Christian culture that he was writing to. This is a relatable letter for today's world. In, in 105 verses, 1 Peter covers a wide range of theology and ethics and doctrine. So let's begin with an introduction to 1 Peter. The author of the letter is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now Peter has often been psychologically profiled in sermons and popular writings as one who's impetuous or one who is impulsive. But here's what we know about, about Peter. He was a fisherman from North Galilee. He was called by Jesus to follow him. He became the leader of the 12 disciples. He was the first to call Jesus Messiah. He tried to walk on water like his master. He denied Jesus, but he was restored by Jesus he was the primary leader of the first church. He received a magnificent vision about the unity of all of God's people. He was miraculously released from prison, and he had a prolific ministry as far as Rome. Now, Peter went from an outright rejection of Jesus and denial of Jesus to restoration and then preaching the Lord's death and resurrection in Acts chapter 2 to finding Jesus as the ultimate reason for Christian existence. 
So that, the author is Peter. So who was he writing to? These are the readers of his letter. And in verse 1, we read that it was people from Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And they're provinces or areas that the first believers lived whom the letter was written to. And this area would be known as Asia Minor, and it covers most of modern-day Turkey today. The inhabitants of Asia Minor were diverse, as the region was. They had different origins and different religions, different ethnic roots, different languages, different political histories. And there was a substantial Jewish population that resided there also. And maybe they were Jews that were present at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what we looked at about four weeks ago, and they heard Peter's first sermon, and they were converts at that time, and then they returned back to their hometowns, and they planted churches there. And perhaps those are the churches that Peter was writing to. And as we read First Peter, we're, we're struck that the unity that the gospel produces, and diverse as the backgrounds of the people were, they had become new people of God, a new family of God, the chosen ones scattered throughout the world. And like the Christians in Asia Minor to whom Peter was writing, most of us don't face universal state-sponsored persecution at this time. But we're encountering the reality of a greater hostility to anything Christian in our world. While we may live under the rule of governments that offer some religious freedom today in the United States, Christianity is generally no longer generally accepted or deemed acceptable to the general public and population. Believers may not face imprisonments or torture or executions in the United States. However, American Christians do face a progressively intolerant culture in which we are likely to be discriminated against simply because we identify with Jesus Christ today. This is our new reality in America, and we need Peter to teach us. We need to look through this letter over the next 10, 12 weeks. We need Peter to teach us about the reality that following Christ and obeying what he commands, it does make us all different. We're aliens, we're strangers, and we're sojourners passing through a foreign land on our way home. So how do we do this? How do we endure unjust suffering in this post-Christian culture? And how do we live with joy and hope and love when we're mocked and we're maligned and we're misunderstood because of what we believe and how we live? Jesus said in John chapter 15, he said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. Do you see sufferings and persecution and, and painful trials in your life as a surprise? Are, are the days past when it was possible to be comfortable and culturally acceptable and Christian at the same time? In 1 Peter chapter 12, Peter says, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. None of this should be a surprise to us. And so let's look at our text today and, and we'll ask ourselves, what, what is it like to live as an exile? And we'll talk about what it means to be an exile. So why are we exiles? That's the first question we'll take a look at through our text. In verse 1, there's a word that's used there, it's scattered. It's a Greek word, diaspora, and it's mainly used throughout the Bible referring to Jewish people who were not in their homeland, who were scattered away from their homeland. But here we read Peter is using this in applying it to believers of all, of all kinds, Gentiles and Jewish. And he says it again in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and as exiles. All Christians are exiles. And we are to live as exiles. And we'll talk about all about that today. The original Greek word used here is describing a particular type of person. That's, that would be those who call on Jesus Christ. It describes a certain particular type of a person as an exile. Now, this word is best translated for us, for our purposes today, as resident alien. So an exile is a, is a resident alien. Now, a resident alien, think with me now, a resident alien is not a tourist. You are in a country that you are not a citizen of if you're a resident alien, but you live here. You have a green card, perhaps, in the United States if you're a resident alien. You're a functioning and productive part of society. You have a job as a resident alien. You know the language and you're learning the customs of America. But you are not a citizen. You are a, a citizen of your home country. And you have not renounced your citizenship of your home country. And so this is the way it is, as I know some resident aliens here, and, and this is sort of a general description of them. And even though as a resident alien you are liked by your coworkers or you have friends in the country that you're residing in, they still look at you as a resident alien and they think of you as just a little bit weird as a resident alien. Something's not quite like an American citizen in you because you're not. Because you don't share all the American values and the customs and you're a little bit different. You don't enjoy the freedoms and the privileges of being full citizens of America. You have a passport which means that you're not expected to stay forever. And this is the word that Peter uses to describe Christians. We're temporary resident aliens. And the resident aliens theme verse is this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the exile way of life then? If, if we're to be exiles, we're kind of understanding what it, what it means to be a resident alien. What is the way of life that we live here? Well, the first thing we could see is we're, we're sojourners. We're, we're just sojourners. We're, we're not making our home here. We're on the way home. The great things that happen to you when you give Jesus Christ the steering wheel of your life is that you're forgiven and you're completely accepted, you're completely loved. And your Christian life, though, will never be all that satisfying as a sojourner. You will struggle. Things will never quite feel just right. 
And even though you're completely loved and completely accepted and completely forgiven, you're not home yet. Now, in the, in the summertime, I mean, these next few months, many of us will go on vacations. We'll, we'll travel to exotic places, maybe adventurous places. We'll go to different states. We'll go to different regions. But if you're like me, on the way home from the airport, wherever I go, whether it be for pleasure or for ministry or business or whatever it is, when I'm in that car and I'm getting into my neighborhood, one of the things I love to do is I love to roll down the window, get out of the air conditioning. and ro- Well, I don't really want to get out of the air conditioning these days. But a- anyways, I, I like to roll down the window and I feel the cool breeze of the South Bay. And I... And I smell, and I just imagine, we don't live that far away from the beach, and we're not right on the beach, but I, there's so many times that my wife and I will go outside, and the, the wind will blow, be blowing just right, and she'll come in, and, and Janet will say, you need to go outside, it smells like the beach outside. And I just, I, I, I feel that cool air of the South Bay. I smell the ocean breeze. But better than that, after going on vacation, even though vacation is great and we stay in nice hotels sometimes and the beds are really nice, there's nothing better after a week or two away from home or a day or two away from home to go in your bedroom and to slide right into your bed and to put your head on your pillow. And if you don't have a bed like that, you really need to get a bed that's like your home. I love our bed. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. My pillow, I got one of those whatever pillows, you know, and, and, um, and I put my head on that pillow, and it just feels like home. The Bible is filled with stories of the ultimate home where everything fits your deepest longings. It fits your deepest longings of your soul, I think we could say. Complete love, complete joy, complete rest, and complete peace. No regrets and no conflict, no tears, no anxiety, no death, no loss, no evil. There's just nothing quite like what that home's going to be like. The Bible, though, is filled, also filled with exile stories. We read about Abraham in the very beginning of the Bible, a man that was at home, and God comes to him and says, I want you to go, and I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go right now, so I want you to, to go without knowing. And Abraham does, and he becomes an exile. You, you read about um, Egypt, and the, the children of God were in Egypt under the iron fist of an oppressive regime. They were away from home. You read about in, in in, uh, in Babylon, the Israelites are sort of banished to this foreign land, and they're, they're truly exiles in Babylon. And then you read in Genesis, in the very first book in the Bible, where Adam and Eve are there, and they're home in the, in their, in the Garden of Eden. But then sin enters in, and they're, they're told to leave their home. And some of you today, right here, do not know Jesus. And you're trying to make the world, this world, your home. And you're achieving and you're seeking comfort just right here. And you're seeking beauty and pleasure and riches. You're seeking love and adventure and peace and longevity just right here where you're living. 
But I've got to ask you, if that's what you're seeking, why are you so unhappy? Why are you so sad and anxious and conflicted? It's because you're not home yet. And this is the reason that human beings were created with fellowship for fellowship with God. Our true home is in the presence of God. In Revelation chapter 21, it reads this way, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God is, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, no mourning, no crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's a picture of our home there. And we're just sojourners moving towards that, that homeland. As a Christian, you're on a pilgrimage. You're, you're a sojourner. You're an exile. You're a, you're a pilgrim. And the world you're living in doesn't quite fit you because you're homeward bound. The second thing, living as an exile, is that we're distant yet belonging. And that's a really interesting thing, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this on the next point, but as an exile, as you're living as an exile, you're distant and yet you belong. As an exile, how do we live then? It's not withdrawal from the world, but it's not accommodation to the world too. We're not identical to our neighbors, but we love our neighbors. There's a theologian, his name is Miroslav Volf. And he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, all about the Christian's identity. And I think he, he captures it right here. Take, take a look at this, or let, listen to this. He writes, Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, Croatians, Russian, or Tutsis, and then Christians. At the very core of Christian identity lies an all-encompassing change of loyalty from a given culture with his gods to the god of all cultures. Christians are not the insiders who have taken flight to a new Christian culture and become outsiders to their own culture. Rather, when they have responded to the call of the gospel, they have stepped, as it were, with one foot outside their own culture while with the other remaining firmly planted in it. They are distant and yet they belong. Both distance and belonging are essential. I love that. One foot in, in culture of the world and then another foot in Christian culture. It's distance and yet belonging. We're going to talk about this throughout this series. So how do we know then? How do we know we're doing well in living out our faith as exiles? There's a test to living out your faith as an exile. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, describe this. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, if you're living a good life as an exile, there are two things that are going to happen at once, all at the same time. The first is you will be accused of things if you're living as a Christian exile. You'll be misunderstood. You'll be offensive to people around you. That'll happen. You'll be accused of things. Look, people will think you're a little bit strange. But at the same time, here's the other thing that's going to happen. They will see your good deeds in your life and they will glorify God. Others will see the beauty of God in you and come to Jesus as they accuse you at the same time. And both of those things will come together. 
What does it mean in verse 12 to live such good lives among the pagans? It means this, that you'll be extraordinarily offensive and incredibly attractive all at the same time. This is your test. You won't just turn people off, but you're going to attract them too. You won't just attract people, but you're going to turn them off all at the same time. Now, what Peter's doing here is he's alluding to the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, people will insult you, they'll persecute you, and they'll falsely say all kinds of evil things against you. And then he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is saying, if you live your life just like the Sermon on the Mount, you'll be both offensive and attractive. And throughout Christian history, we find the early church had some certain marks of the early church that the world looked at. And if you look at early church history, you'll find four things. You'll find that, that Christians living in their culture, both attractive and offensive, they were marked by four things. The first was forgiveness. The second was generosity to the poor of all races. The third was the ability to be cheerful in the midst of suffering and pain. And the fourth is sexual purity. In these four ways, Christians were radically different than the culture around them. In some ways, they were offensive. In other ways, they were so compelling. For instance, with forgiveness. In this culture of that, of that age, of culture and shame, if you wronged somebody, you would take vengeance. It was just a cultural norm. If you messed with someone in, in, in your family, then another person in that family would go and take vengeance against you. But Christians came along and said, no, 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 we're turning the other cheek. We're forgiving without limits. And that was so radically different. And people thought it was offensive, but then they thought, wow, that's really attractive too. The second thing that you could read about in, in early church history is that Christians were not just generous to their own. Everyone was generous to their own and took care of their families well, but Christians were compassionate to people of all races and classes. Christians believe that every human being, regardless of race, class, culture, citizenship, or disability, was created in the image of God. The whole idea of human rights in our world comes from the imago Dei, the image of God, and the Christians are the ones who started all of that. The third is... Christians were cheerful in death and suffering because they believed in a future resurrection. They lived as exiles and sojourners, knowing this is not my home and heaven is my home. And so any suffering that I would have today, it was going to be okay. In fact, if you, if you killed me, it was even better because then I would get home faster. And the fourth thing is sexual purity. The Greeks believed that the body didn't matter as much as the mind and the soul. And, and sex was seen just as a bodily appetite. No big deal. It was just about pleasure. But Christians believed that sex was one of the expressions of total life commitment and intimacy found only in marriage. And some of these Christian life practices were attractive, some were offensive. And we know later, historically, that Christians were persecuted and killed in their movement grew like crazy as a result of all of that. Universally, if you're living out your faith, you'll be offensive and attractive all at the same time. This is the test. How are you doing with that test in your life? 
Most Christians are either offensive but not attractive, or they're attractive but never offensive, or more common, they're neither. They're neither offensive nor attractive. So think of it this way. To be offensive takes courage. To be attractive takes compassion. In this way, courage without compassion is self-righteousness. And compassion without courage is cowardice. You're just wimpy. So how are you doing? How are you passing? Are you passing or are you failing this test? It takes courage and compassion to live as Christian exiles. Our last point is this. Where does the power come to live as exiles? Where does it all come from? Well, the first is this. It becomes from uh, by who you are in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We're going to get to this more in detail in a few weeks, but because you were chosen by Jesus, he has equipped and empowered you to live as exiles. And our last point is this. Where does this power come from? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, it says, Having been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. This means this, that Jesus was the ultimate exile. Jesus was at home in heaven, and he was at home, but he came to earth for a rescue mission. It's interesting to note, I think this is fascinating, you read throughout the Gospels of Jesus' life, and there is no scriptural account in the Bible of Jesus being at his home. You never read that Jesus was having dinner at his dinner table and a bunch of disciples came and knocked at the door. It, never, never. In fact, Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 9, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was exiled from his home in heaven, while on earth he wandered like a sojourner and he gave up his heavenly home and lived as an exile and ultimately shed his blood for us so that we would find a home. Not in Southern California, but our home would be found in heaven. So next time, you as an exile, next time you're anxious or afraid, or you're uncomfortable in this temporary world we live in, embrace Jesus. I encourage you to embrace Jesus, the ultimate exile who gave up his life for you. Amen.